0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall not happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, "'Get behind me, Satan. "'You are a stumbling block to me. "'You do not have in mind the things of God, "'but the things of men.' "'Then Jesus said to his disciples, "'If anyone would come after me, "'he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. "'For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, "'but whoever loses his life for me will find it. "'What good will it be for a man "'if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Morning, my name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community's Downtown Campus. And it is a it's good to see you here this morning. I'd like to start our time together this morning uh, just to speak a little bit about the major news events that unfolded in our nation this past week. I uh, and perhaps if I were a better pastor. I would have been able to find a way to touch on the events in Baton Rouge or the events in Minneapolis or the events in Dallas within this morning's sermon. I mean, we are speaking about suffering after all, but I I have to confess, church, I could not. Um, As I I tried to weave them in, my best efforts, it really just sounded a little feeble, it sounded a little forced, and I uh, just didn't want to do that this morning. Quite frankly, the, the weight of these events, it proved a little too much for me, this week and so like many of you uh, my heart is broken I know that I'm frustrated I know there's things that make me sad I'm convinced there's some things that are deeply broken in our nation some things that need to change some uh, relationships that need to be rebuilt there's there's all kinds of things that need to happen and I'm desperate for wisdom as to how faithful and thoughtful Christians can respond because I know that we must respond right the church the people of God, the people that God has called together, that special assembly of young and old and rich and poor and folks from all backgrounds remember us talking about that last week. The, the church, that group that Jesus is assembling, uh, is called to be peacemakers, right? It's called to be people that bring reconciliation to our world. I believe that that is true. And so this morning, even though I'm not sure quite what to say or how to say, I do know that silence is not an option. Because silence can unintentionally communicate a lack of significance or a lack of care. And and what happened this week in our nation church, it is significant. And we as God's people, we as God's peacemakers, we are to care deeply about such things. And so I'd like to begin our time together this morning with a prayer for wisdom, a prayer for courage, a prayer for thoughtfulness, and a prayer for the the families of Alton Sterling of Philando Castile, of Officer Lauren Ahrens, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamoripa, for all the other families and names that we don't know, for the political leaders, community leaders, and faith leaders in Baton Rouge, Minneapolis, and Dallas. There is something happening in our nation, and I believe we need God's help. So will you join me in prayer? Lord, we, uh, we have seen so plainly this week that our world is not as it's supposed to be. And that, uh, God, that can cause us to lament, and that's a good thing. It can cause us to cry out for change, and that's a good thing. It can cause us to want to rush in and help, and that's a good thing. Lord, I pray that you would keep these events from leading us to despair. Uh, as your people... We can certainly feel pain and we should feel pain and we should weep with those who weep but we don't need to be hopeless Lord because you have overcome the world and you give us great reason for hope and you are the great reconciler and in you there is never a lost cause so and would you strengthen your church this week as we try to respond well to the events around us and Lord would you Would you be a comfort to all the families affected by this week's tragedy? Would you bring people of peace and comfort to them? Would you uh, give local pastors in their communities wisdom on how to respond? Will you be with our uh, justice department and with our police departments across the country and with mayors and governors and all the different folks that have a part to play in, in moving us forward in a positive manner, Lord? Would you give them so much wisdom? We really need your help In this area, something significant is happening. Don't let us be people that are silent or on the sidelines. Help us to be your peacemakers. We ask for your strength in this. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. And can I say one more thing, church? I promise. I know we've been going straight through the Gospel of Matthew, and we will get to Matthew today. But just one more thing. Will you also, church, commit? Would you commit to prayer this week? Continue to pray for our nation. Could you do that? But could you also commit? to being kind to one another and kind to those with whom you're connected and with whom you interact on social media. And I know this is getting personal now. I know I'm, I'm really digging in there to your life. And I, again, I promise that the sermon is coming, but I convinced that I'd be neglecting my duty as one of your pastors in this church if I didn't remind you of Paul's words in Colossians. He writes in chapter 4, verse 6, let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you might know how to answer everyone. And to put that verse in context, Paul is instructing the early church into how they should interact with their neighbors. And he's basically saying, hey, it's okay to have an opinion, right? It's okay if your speech is seasoned with salt a little bit, if you speak about things that matter in a way that sticks, right? Our speech can be seasoned with salt, but he starts his instruction by saying, hey, let your speech always be gracious. Let your speech always be be gracious in church i wonder uh, how much better my interaction with others would be online if before i typed and sent anything i thought is this gracious is this gracious so in a moment when our nation is having an important conversation and at a time where uh, difficult dialogue is needed and emotions are running high can we commit as a church just to being the kinds of people that in that public interaction, that space where we're interacting with friends and then their friends can see our comments. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen online. You know it. Can we just commit to being people that bring graciousness and reconciliation to that dialogue? Is that, is that all right? Can you agree to that? So two things this week. Will you continue to pray for our nation, but can we also commit to being folks whose speech is always gracious, particularly online. And man, if it sounds like I'm insistent on this, it's because I'm preaching to myself this morning. This was tough for me this week, but church, we need to be people of prayer and we need to be people with gracious speech, okay? Can we commit to that? All right, now let's all take a deep breath. And if you haven't already, will you open your Bibles to Matthew 16? On page 822, if you grabbed a community Bible, Matthew 16, and we're picking up where we left off last week. Uh, Last week, we studied uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 20, and we listened in on Peter's groundbreaking declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ, the one who will save the whole world, the one whom God has called to have a special role in human history. We listened as Peter told us who Jesus is. And we also listened last week as Jesus told us what he's all about. Jesus said, I'm about my church. I am building a church. And those two ideas, that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is building a church, those are central to the Christian faith. They are foundational to what we profess in this place. Last week's message was a very important message, but so is our message this morning. Because this morning we're going to learn how Jesus intends to accomplish what he's all about. This morning we're going to hear another foundational message to the Christian faith that speaks to us about a critical component of the Christian life, and that that component is suffering. But before we do, before we dive into what Matthew has to teach us, I'd like to tell you a little story. A story that I think can put this morning's message into perspective. You see, before I came to work at Christ Community... I was a children's librarian at a large public library. Yes, that is me with the Clifford. Uh, in all the world, he came to Allen County in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That was a special day at the library, but on a typical day at the library, I had very uh, many and diverse roles. I would uh, generally start the morning at our kids-only computer lab, and there I would help kids find the games they wanted to play online and keep them away from any content that wasn't age-appropriate. In the afternoon, I would host Lego Club, Uh, giving kids a chance to let their imaginations roam free. We'd dump out these massive Tupperware tubs of Legos all over our program room floor and just go nuts. Uh, Some days, I'd clean out our early learning center, uh, pulling books from behind chairs, behind couches. Really, you'd be surprised the places that people can stuff a book. Uh, And on on other days, I'd help uh, our kids find information to take to our reading tower. This thing was the centerpiece of our kids' section. I always thought it looked like a big spaceship ready to take off. It would help them find good materials to read up there. I loved the variety of tasks that I performed at the library. I loved helping kids discover letters and words and seeing them grow in their, in their literacy and in their ability to think. But as I thought about this week's text, I remembered a specific instance from my time working at the library. You see, working in a large public place, like the library, you meet, you meet all kinds of people. You meet all kinds of kids. Uh, there's loud kids quiet kids, runners, criers, talkers, dancers, and, and you meet all kinds of grown-ups that goes with those kids, right? Now, I remember one child coming into the library in particular, and this child who came in, the reason I remember it so clearly, this child came in on a leash, and this leash was one of those backpack leashes. Have you seen these? See, it's a backpack that you can strap your child into. It has kind of a real long handle for you to hold. And the idea is this. The child retains their ability to run free, right? They can go all the way around, but they're still tethered to you somehow on the leash. So while I was working at the library, I saw this kid come in, this leash kid, this kid on a leash. And I'll tell you from those, uh, those first few moments I saw him, it became very apparent to me why this child was on a leash, right? Why he has grown up felt that that was necessary. I'm sure they were thinking that this leash could protect this rambunctious little guy and keep him away from harm, right? But then this kid, the leash kid, as he came into the library, he, he tripped over something. I don't know if something was in his way or if he tripped over his own truth, but he tripped over something and he fell and he started to sob. I mean big wet tears in the library and that moment caught my attention it caught my attention then and it came back to mind this week because here's a sweet kid right a little dude with a lot of energy and here's some some good parents that obviously care about him care about him enough to invest in a leash <laughs> to try to keep him safe and keep him from running somewhere where he'll be out of their side or some place where he might get hurt right And they did all that they could to try to prevent any harm from coming his way. And it's certainly possible, knowing this kid, seeing him, that this leash did prevent a whole lot of heartbreak and pain for that family. But the leash couldn't keep him from tripping and falling. The leash couldn't keep him from all pain. The leash could do a lot, but it couldn't keep him entirely safe. And, church, I want to say that's how it goes. No matter what money we might spend or what habits we might adopt, we cannot completely eliminate suffering from the lives of ourselves or from the lives of those we love. We can minimize it greatly. I mean, as folks living in the 21st century in the United States, there are all kinds of pain and problems that have plagued thro- folks throughout human history that just don't even come on our radar, right? We can minimize a lot of things. There's a lot of pain that we can avoid, but we can't stop it all. Despite our best efforts, our lives come with hardship and with trouble, with pain and hurt just built right in. And what I love about this text this morning is that it gives us a different way and a better way to understand how to handle those difficult parts of life, how to handle that suffering that comes our way which we cannot Avoid. This morning, Jesus suggests that his followers, we need not try to avoid suffering at all costs or to ignore suffering when we experience it, but rather, Jesus says, there is a way in which we can move towards difficulty, can move towards suffering, and in so doing, can find full life and good life and transformation. It's all right here in this text. So now let's look together at Matthew 16 beginning in verse 21, and try to understand this remarkable news that Jesus is giving us about His suffering and our suffering. Matthew 16, 21, Matthew writes, From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, immediately after Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, what we studied last week, right? And immediately after Jesus says, I'm building his church, as soon as those things are out in the air, out in the open, and the disciples have an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's all about, as soon as that's all been made clear, Jesus starts to give them a little more information about his mission. And so Jesus says, guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, where all my enemies live. And when I get there, I'm going to suffer many things. Don't miss that in the text. I'm going to suffer many things, Jesus says, at the hands of the elders and the chief priests. And then I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise again. And as Jesus is outlining this plan, Peter, who just nailed it, Peter, last week, the one who rightly identified Jesus as the Christ, who made this declaration that's the first of its kind in the entirety of Matthew's gospel, Peter, who who just got it so right, blows it big time. Jesus says, the plan for me is to suffer and die. And Peter responds, verse 22, look at it. It says that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Uh Uh-oh, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter, who just got it so right, now gets it so wrong. He tries to rebuke or to correct Jesus. He says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong, Jesus. That suffering part, that dying part, that's not going to happen to you. That's going to stay far away from you. We're not letting any of that come near. Far be it from you, Lord. You're the Messiah. You're not supposed to suffer. You see, Peter was shocked by Jesus' words. Peter was surprised by the suffering that Jesus was describing. Because in Peter's mind, the Messiah wasn't one who suffered. In Peter's mind, the Messiah wasn't one who had any sort of difficulty. In Peter's mind, the Messiah wasn't one who faced pain. Peter, he he understood that Jesus was the Messiah, that he held a special place in human history. But but Peter was convinced that the Messiah wasn't supposed to experience pain. No, the Messiah, Peter thought, was supposed to fulfill God's plan. He's not supposed to get hurt, he's not supposed to be harmed, he's not supposed to, to die. Now, before we give Peter too hard of a time because we know how the story ends, and before we give Peter too hard of a time because, man, if we've been raised at church at all, we know the cross was always part of God's plan. Before we criticize Peter or question Peter, can we just pause for a second and own the fact that so many times we make the same assumptions that he is making right here. Many times we conclude that Christ, and by extension Christians, are not supposed to suffer. Here's what it might look like for us. This is what we might say or think. We, we might say, I thought, thought following Jesus was supposed to take care of all my problems, right? I thought following Jesus was supposed to make things better, not worse. I thought following Jesus was supposed to make me happy, I thought following Jesus protected you from the really bad stuff. I thought that because Jesus is God, I thought that if I said, hey, Jesus, I'm on your team, I would be immune from all the difficult things that happen to everyone else. I thought that following Jesus was the way to avoid suffering. Let's be real, church. Before we're too hard on Peter... Let's remember that so often we make the same assumptions about suffering in Christ. We believe that they do not go hand in hand. We really do. And that's what Peter's doing here because you've got to remember that in Peter's mind, the Messiah was going to be some kind of triumphant political figure. That brings God's people back to glory and freedom. In Peter's mind, Jesus, the Messiah, is someone who's going to go back and and declare rule and to have righteous reign over God's people, right? Peter thinks that there's some kind of maybe political revolution in the brewing. Peter thinks that Jesus is going to be some kind of new leader that is installed and make things right. And because Peter is so associated with Jesus, because Peter has followed Jesus from the beginning because Peter is in Jesus's inner circle in his mind. Man, when Jesus finally steps in and takes over as the Messiah, that'll be great for me, won't it? Because now that Jesus is in charge, man, I've been Jesus's right hand. Man, there's probably a sweet role for me involved. There's probably a really happy ending for me. There's probably a little comfort and a little ease at the end of this journey for me. Man, if Jesus is the Messiah, when we get to Jerusalem and he overthrows everything, man, that's going to, that's going to work out pretty well for me thought Peter. I've got a comfortable life here. So so when Jesus starts talking about suffering, Peter says, no, 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 you're the Messiah. You've got a special task, And, and part of that task is you're going to bring me comfort, and you're going to bring me ease, and you're going to bring me happiness. You're going to bring me security when you take over. That's why Peter rebukes Jesus. But notice Jesus's reply. Verse 23, the text says, But Jesus, he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus gets stern with Peter. He says, no, Peter, you're the one who has it all wrong." You're the one who's backwards. You're the one who's not seeing things the right way. And he, he gets, goes so far as to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, what you need to know about this phrase, get thee behind me, Satan, this, and this isn't Jesus calling Peter a name. This isn't Jesus calling Peter Satan, and this isn't some kind of new slam you can use to win an argument when you really need to get the big guns out, okay? This phrase, get thee behind me, Satan, this is connecting what we're learning this week with what we learned Last week, do you remember last Sunday when we studied Jesus' response to Peter's good declaration, right? And he says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Last week, Peter gets it exactly right who Jesus is, and Peter says, Hey, or Jesus says to Peter, Hey, the fact that you got that right, that came from my Father in heaven. Well, in the same way that Jesus says the source of that correct information was from the Father, this get thee behind me, Satan. Is Jesus making a bold statement about the source of Peter's incorrect thinking that there's no suffering for the Messiah? Does that make sense? Jesus is saying something similar to what he said last week. He's saying that Peter's notion that suffering should not touch the Messiah actually comes directly from Satan himself. In the same way that Peter's knowledge of Jesus' divine identity came from God, Peter's resistance to the fact that Jesus will suffer comes directly from the evil one. Jesus wanted Peter to know that the belief that no suffering should come his way was a belief that does not come from God. And Jesus reiterates this point when he says, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's letting Peter know that, man, the suffering, the thoughts that you're having about suffering, they're not from God. They're rooted in selfishness. They're thoughts that are primarily concerned with your own comfort and control. You see, Peter cannot imagine the life of Jesus with suffering, but Jesus cannot imagine his life without suffering. There's two different minds at play. And Jesus has a mind that's set on the things of God. And Jesus knows that suffering, it can bring transformation. And so while Peter tries to rebuke Jesus in an attempt to preserve his fantasy of comfort and to preserve his dreams of wealth, status, and ease when Jesus takes over, Jesus says, no, suffering, it's not a a hindrance to my mission. It's actually how my mission will be accomplished. My suffering will yield great transformation. This is where Jesus' thinking starts to challenge our modern assumptions directly. This is where Jesus' thinking, that mind of God, right, starts to challenge our 21st century narrative of the good life. Because we've been told and we believe that the good life, the best life, the life that we should all try to live is the life that accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do the life that plans to do something significant in the world and then accomplishes it. And we assume that that kind of life is possible and that we can get to that kind of life by making a commitment and planning well and being diligent in our work, committing ourselves to a cause. If we just focus hard and and work hard and plan well and fight through any challenges, if we give it our best and get a little help from our friends, we can do exactly what we decide we want to do without any interruption or without unexpected difficulty. This is the kind of life we believe the good life is, a life that makes a plan and sticks to it and is uninterrupted. But the fact is that suffering comes, and Jesus knows that that kind of life, that it's it's all just a fantasy. There is no kind of life that you can say exactly what you want to do and get right there through working hard and working diligently. And what what we do so often, we we believe that life is possible and we believe it's the life that God wants for us. And so we ask for his help in our plan and we ask that he'd keep him safe and keep us safe and keep our plan safe and give us comfort along the way and keep us from any kind of difficulty. Friends, this is what so much 21st century Christianity looks like. God, help me go the way that I want to go with the minimum amount of resistance possible. And I think that Jesus hears those prayers and probably chuckles a little bit. And not because he doesn't care about us. No, I think he just chuckles because he knows that sin exists and that our world is deeply broken down to its core, that things are, in the words of theologian Cornelius Plantinga, not the way they're supposed to be, that nothing in our world is as it was intended to be. And so Jesus knows that, man, to try to avoid suffering, or to imagine that we're going to get through life without suffering, or to think that it's somehow possible to plan something and then work diligently and just have the minimum amount of suffering, Jesus knows that that's just, just fantasy. And so instead of holding up a fantasy and suggesting that that kind of life is possible, Jesus says, no. No, that's actually not the good life at all. Jesus says, one day I'm going to remove suffering completely. But until that day, the good life, The best life, the life that I'm modeling, is a life that acknowledges suffering is real, but instead of denying it or resisting it or avoiding it, rather embraces it and then, with God's help, redeems it. Jesus says that you can't avoid suffering, but you can embrace it and I can redeem it. And, church, this is good news. Because I'm looking at a room full of people this morning, some of whom I know very well. And I'm looking out of a room full of people with stories who I'm beginning to become familiar with. And I know that this room is filled with people who have faced all kinds of difficulty. And this morning, Jesus isn't telling you that you missed the good life because some suffering came your way. And he's not saying that you should just pack up and go home because some unexpected big things happened in your life that the plan's derailed, That's all's for naught. No, this morning, Jesus is telling you that suffering is something that he can use and redeem. This morning, Jesus is saying, if you will embrace the difficult things that have come your way just because this world is broken, and if you'll embrace the difficult things that have come your way because following me in this broken world brings opposition, if you will embrace those things, you will know that your life is not ruined. And that it's not unfolding contrary to my plan. In fact, your life is being transformed and it's being redeemed even in the midst of your suffering. Pastor and author Paul Tripp puts it this way. He says, yes, your life is messy and hard, but that's not a failure of the plan. It is the plan. It's God working to complete what he's begun in you. And that means that those moments of difficulty are not an interruption of his plan or the failure of his plan, but rather an important part of his plan he continues i think there are times when many of us when we cry out for god's grace and we get it but it's not always the grace we're looking for we want the grace of relief or release what we need is the grace of transformation jesus tells peter you're right i am the Messiah. I'm the one who will accomplish God's plan in the world. And the way it will be accomplished, Jesus says, the way this whole world will be transformed is through suffering. So if you're going to follow me, Jesus says, you will suffer. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now notice what Jesus is doing here. He's connecting discipleship or following him, right? We talk about this a lot at Christ Community, being connected to Jesus or yoked with Jesus. Jesus is connecting discipleship or following him with suffering. Jesus is saying that following him is going to be hard because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way God intended it to be. So when we try to live as God intended, there's all kinds of opposition and suffering that comes our way. Our plans are going to be interrupted just as everyone's plan gets interrupted because the world is deeply broken down to its core, right? So when you follow me, Jesus says, you will experience difficulty. But then he adds, and whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would do whatever it takes to try to make themselves comfortable or make themselves safe, whoever would try to make life pain-free or difficulty-free, whoever would make it their chief aim to preserve their life and preserve their comfort, man, they're ultimately going to lose their life anyway. Look, Jesus says, we all die. Everyone does, but he continues. Whoever loses their life for my sake, whoever embraces the difficulty that life brings, whoever embraces the added difficulty that comes with following Jesus in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, whoever loses their life and embraces suffering, Jesus said, and allows my life and my message and my good news to shine through their experience, even in the darkest moments, whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. And though it might feel incredibly painful, and though it might feel like a death, right? That's take up your cross, right? It will feel, feel, feel hard. Jesus says, I promise that any difficulty for my sake, any suffering for my sake, it, it will help you find life. I will notice that, and I will repay it, and I will redeem it. You will have eternal life, and you will be living the good life and the best life here and now when you embrace suffering. That's what Jesus says. Because I am the one, Jesus says, who can transform a Roman cross, an execution instrument of torture, into a symbol of hope and promise. Right? I am the one, Jesus says, who can redeem a Roman murder performed at the hands or at the shouts of an angry mob. I'm the one who can redeem that and make it a death that becomes a sacrifice that changes the whole world. Jesus says, I'm the one that can redeem difficult and dark things. So if you will embrace suffering... And if you will deny your desire for comfort and ease, and I promise, Jesus says, to redeem your suffering, and I guarantee that you will find true life. This morning, Jesus invites us to embrace suffering. So what does it mean to embrace suffering? How do we do that practically? What does it mean for us tomorrow and the next day and the day after that? Well, let me try to clarify a few things here Uh, and I'm going to say two things that it doesn't mean and two things that it does mean. So first, it doesn't mean that we celebrate suffering. There is a difference between embracing suffering and celebrating suffering, right? Jesus followers certainly, they embrace suffering when it comes way, but it doesn't mean that we celebrate. It doesn't mean that Jesus wants you to throw a party for a difficult diagnosis, right? or that Jesus wants you to celebrate a deep relational hurt, or that Jesus wants you to just gloss over something tragic that happens in your life. That's not it at all. Remember a few weeks ago when Kelly led us in a lament in response to the shooting in Orlando, right? And we learn that lament is part of the scriptures. It's something that's modeled in the Psalms. It's a way that we can uh, come to God and approach God with all the trouble in our lives, right? That remains true in spite of what we've learned this morning. Even as Jesus says embrace suffering, he doesn't nullify or negate the fact that lament is still an appropriate response for Christians in time of difficulty, right? To embrace suffering is different from celebrating suffering. Jesus isn't asking us to just put on a happy face, or to somehow be excited when bad things come our way. But he is saying there's a way that as we're mourning difficulty, and as we're processing grief, and as we're experiencing great pain, we can also choose and be cognizant of the fact that this too is something God can redeem that this too is something that's not too great for Jesus to work through, right? Even as we're feeling the grief and we're lamenting, we don't have to, we can embrace suffering and realize that Jesus is still at work even in the midst of that pain. Embracing suffering, it doesn't mean that we celebrate suffering. It just means that at some point as we're processing, we in faith affirm that God's plan is not derailed in the midst of our suffering that he is able to bring out some kind of transformation through our suffering so it doesn't mean that we celebrate suffering and it also doesn't mean that we go looking for suffering now this is a great error that many church people have made throughout the centuries there were certain seasons in church history where folks would go out and try to find something hard in their life so that they could be closer to jesus somehow there's actually of times when faithful people would try to honor God by wearing particularly itchy clothing, right? Or by leading isolated lives away from others in church without taking an inch away from the sincerity of their faith because I believe they were sincere. But can I just tell you that, man, an itchy shirt is hardly the kind of suffering that Jesus had in mind when he asked us to follow him, okay? Even though they can be awful. So we don't go looking for suffering, right? Suffering is something that will come your way because, again, this world is not as it's supposed to be. There's difficulty and hardship all around. Jesus says, hey, in this world you will have trouble. I think that means we don't have to go out and look for suffering. But if we're in one of those seasons where we're not in a lot of difficulty, you're not in a lot of pain, I think what we can go out and look for are other people who are suffering, So the error that folks have made, we don't go and look for something more hard for us when it feels like, oh, we're in a good spot. Maybe I should go find something hard to get close to Jesus. No, no, no. We don't go look for trouble. It will come. But when we're in that period, we can go and look for other people who are suffering because the fact is they're all around us. And as part of God's church, as part of that group that he has called together, one of our responsibility is to comfort and care for those among us and outside of us who are hurting. So to embrace suffering, it doesn't mean that we celebrate suffering, and it doesn't mean we go out and look for suffering for ourselves, right? We can look for other people who are suffering to help them, but it doesn't mean that. But it does mean two things. First, it means that we don't shy away from difficult tasks. We don't automatically or instinctively say no to things that we know will be hard or difficult for us or might cause us a little bit of pain. And look, we, we live in a moment, we live in a, a time in human history where there's all kinds of literature being written about self-care and personal boundaries, and hear me clearly, it's a great time to be alive. Those are important principles, and we need to care for ourselves so much. I mean, it is true, if you don't take care of yourself, you won't have any of yourself to give away, right? Self-care is good, boundaries are good, But and everything that's in those books, is, I think it's true in a sense, but what I fear is also true is that some of that self-care literature and some of that boundary literature, it might arm us with some good language and some good techniques for avoiding some suffering that God might actually be inviting us into. Does that make sense? Look, some of you need to hear this morning that you need more boundaries in your life. I'm not dismissing that literature altogether. There's, there's so much truth and so much benefit that the church has gotten from some great psychologists and thinkers in that area. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying this. man. It can be so easy to use those principles and that good advice in order to excuse ourselves from difficult tasks that God might actually intend to, yes, they could hurt us a bit, but to transform and grow us. So church, this is why prayer is so important because prayer, being connected to God in conversation, uh, it's one way that I regularly hear the divine veto to my desire to get out of something. In those moments when an invitation comes my way and it's like, oh, I know a nice way to back out of this politely, and it's, I gotta stop and ask first, Lord, Lord, is this one of those things where a boundary is appropriate? Or is this one of those things where you might actually be inviting me into something that, yes, I know will be difficult, but that I also know will be a way that you grow me and shape me and use me? This is actually what it looks like for me to take up my cross and follow you right now. That's why prayer is so, so important, Church. And I just want to suggest that embracing suffering, it, it means that sometimes we purposefully move towards difficult tasks. And it also means, sometimes, that we don't shy away from difficult people. Now, a task is one thing. It's something that comes and goes, "But man, a person, a person lasts a little longer than a task, don't they?" person takes a little more energy, person takes a little more patience, a little more endurance over the long haul. But hear this, some of the difficulty that Jesus might want to use to cultivate your heart and to transform you from the inside out, it could be through difficult relationships. I think that Jesus wants to grow us in genuine compassion for others and care for others, and I think that he oftentimes does that in relationships that aren't always easy. I've just experienced that in my own life. Now, I will say this. I think that because difficult people take more effort and more patience and more energy, I'm not sure that Jesus calls us to difficult people as often as he calls us to difficult tasks. Does that make sense? This is just true practical. I think there will be fewer difficult people in your life who God asks you to step towards than there will be difficult tasks. But I think there will be some I think there will be times when you know in your heart or you sense in your spirit or a thought pops into your mind. And it's like, man, I think the Lord is asking me to engage with this difficult coworker. And right? I think the Lord is asking me to move towards this person that other people don't move towards, and they might have good reason, but it feels like God's asking me to do this. I just want to say that could be part of what it means to embrace the suffering that comes with following Jesus, right? Embracing suffering, it doesn't mean that we celebrate suffering and it doesn't mean that we just kind of dismiss suffering or avoid suffering, but it does mean that we embrace difficult tasks and that we embrace difficult people sometimes as the Lord leads. Now, as we close this morning, I want to speak to one final group of folks that I am certain are in this room. I want to speak to those of you this morning who don't need a reminder that suffering is part of life even for Jesus' followers because you are living it. We're not naive. In a room of this size, there are some folks right now who are in the middle of a very difficult circumstance. I know that. I know that. And if that's you this morning... Can I just simply say I am so sorry for whatever it is that is difficult for you. I know and God knows that the world is not how it's supposed to be and some terrible things happen to people and I'm I'm sorry that you're experiencing whatever it is but can I also say that I do believe everything I preached this morning because I have experienced it in my own life that God can redeem things that seem much too dark or much too difficult. So in the meantime, as you're in the midst of this tough time, all I want to invite you to, can you allow this church to be the kind of place that cares well for you and supports you well as you go through this difficult time? That could be as simple as filling out a prayer card. It could be talking to me. We've got all kinds of resources here. We'd love to help. But will you let us, as you're in the midst of your suffering and I know that it's tough and it might seem like it'll last a while, hey, could you just let this church be a place that cares well for you? We would love to be that kind of place. So Church Peter tried to correct Jesus when Jesus said that suffering was part of his mission. Let's not make the same mistake. Suffering, it's, it's part of life. This week may we remember that our suffering lives like Jesus's suffering can bring about good transformation if we embrace it and trust God with it. Can we remember that? All right, let's pray. And Lord, it has been a a heavy week. And then in your providence, this morning you brought us to this heavy text you knew months ago. When we laid out this sermon series, that we would be here this morning. Which, man, God, to me, that's just other evidence that you do care well for us, that you see us in the midst of even the darkest circumstances, and that the good news that you spoke thousands of years ago is still true today, that suffering doesn't mean that it's all ruined suffering is actually a way that we follow you and it's something that you can redeem. So Lord, will you will you remind us of that? And will you be close to those in this church this week who are suffering greatly? Will you enable us to be the kind of church that can comfort those who need it when they need it? We need that capacity, God. This has been a tough word, but we trust that it's true and from you, and we trust that you are one who cares for us greatly as you evidenced through your own death on our behalf. And so knowing that, God, we can trust you when you say that you can redeem our suffering. We really can. Help us to believe that in the deepest part of our hearts. In your son's name we pray, amen.